Good morning. My name's Aubrey. I want to add uh, my greeting to Drew's. I'm also one of the pastors here at the Church of the Incarnation, and I'm very glad to get to worship the Lord Jesus Christ here with you today. We've just heard um, a long reading of Scripture, John chapter 15, starting in verse 18, all the way through to the end of John chapter 16. And what this is, this is the last night before Jesus' crucifixion. In John chapter 13, on the night before his crucifixion, Jesus shares a meal with his followers. A, a very natural thing to do, right? If you're getting ready to be apart from someone you love. This is a common human phenomenon. So in John chapter 13, he has a last meal. And then in John chapter 14, 15, and 16, Jesus gives his last teachings to his followers before he's arrested, crucified, and all of those well-known events occur at the end of Jesus' life. And, and, and what he's doing in these three chapters of John is that he's training his disciples to be sent out into the world as his representatives. And this morning, we've listened to the last section of that training. And what Jesus is doing here is that over and over in this final moment of the final moment before he goes away, the last thing he tells his disciples, and he says this multiple times, is that they will fail in fulfilling the mission, their mission to be his representatives in the world. They will fail in that mission if they are not aware that this world, the world that Jesus loves so much, the world that his disciples love so much, this world that they are going out into as Jesus' representatives, they will fail in that mission if they are not aware that this world will hate them and will harm them, will hurt them, mock them, even wound them and kill them. It's really strong language. Now, what's going on here? Does Jesus have some sort of persecution complex? Does Jesus, is he paranoid? Well, as it all ends up, the answer is no. Just a few hours after this conversation, he's betrayed by a friend, arrested, tried, unjustly prosecuted, beaten, tortured, and brutally executed. And his followers in the weeks and the months and the years ahead, they suffer greatly themselves also. We know for certain that the nation Christian church, the, the church early on in its first three centuries, the historical evidence is quite clear that for the first 300 years of the church's ex existence, it experienced on again, off again persecution mostly on again, as they went out and represented Jesus to their friends and their communities 
The first 300 years of the church's history, there was a lot of tension among the followers of Jesus and their families. Among the followers of Jesus and their communities, they were made fun of. They were looked down upon. They were ridiculed by the cultural elite as being intellectually backwards, inferior. They were humiliated and ostracized in their business dealings. And even at times, there were official Roman governmental Jewish governmental sanctioned killings. So as it turns out, Jesus wasn't being paranoid in this moment. This wasn't a persecution complex. But what I want you to notice is what Jesus' primary concern is as he tells them. This is the last thing he talks to them about. And what is his primary concern? Look at chapter 16, verse 1. I have said all of these things to you to keep you from falling away. Interesting, isn't it? I've noticed that Christians in America, when they're praying for other Christians that are suffering, tend not to pray this, but they ask God instead to keep them from suffering. But Jesus' primary concern wasn't, here's how to get out of it. No, it was a fait accompli. His primary concern is that people who go through suffering don't fall away. Apostasy is the theological term for it. I've said these things to you so that you won't fall away when this really bad stuff happens. In other words, I think what Jesus is telling us here is that the most dangerous aspect of being looked down upon as a Christian is not the humiliation. The most dangerous thing you're going to face is not even the death. The most dangerous temptation you're going to face is falling away, watering down, blending in. Avoiding persecution is your biggest temptation. Now, so what Jesus focuses on, in the last thing he tells his followers, he focuses on teaching them, equipping them to not fall away, to endure the really difficult time that they're about to have when they move out into the world as his representatives. He's teaching them how to avoid, how to resist giving in to the enormous pressure they're going to experience to compromise, to back down, to twist in the wind of pressure. So let's look at five lessons that he gives this Followers, in particular on this moment, in this moment that's so pregnant with seriousness and meaning. Number one, don't be surprised. The first thing he says to them is don't be surprised when you encounter resistance and hostility and even hatred and persecution. Now, on the one hand, Jesus obviously is not saying that in every society and in every century, you're going to be thrown to the lions. 
But on the other hand, there is ample evidence that in many times, in many places since then, really bad things have happened to Christians. And we, now we, I think we need to be very careful here. Because the very sad and scandalous truth is that in far too many times, in far too many places, Christians have themselves hated and persecuted people who disagree with them. We've got to own up to that. We've got to be sad about that. Really grieved about that. And on top of that, in countless countries, there have been rulers and whole societies that claim to be Christian and have used the name of Jesus as an excuse to wage war on other countries when the real issue is an agenda that doesn't line up with Christianity. We've got to own up to that. We've got to know that. We've got, we cannot hide from that. And yet, in the 20th century alone, more than 35 million people have been killed because they were Christians. A holocaust. In the 20th century. That, that's a reality that we've got to know. And, and the majority of these deaths occurred under fascist and communist regimes. In 2016 alone, our, in our world, a Christian was killed because they were a follower of Christ. Now, I'm not talking about Christians who were killed for other reasons. Lots of reasons people in this world are killed. But in 2016, a person was killed because they were a Christian every six minutes. Now, not everything that some Christians claim to be persecution is persecution. If a Christian is accustomed to favor from their government because Christianity is what the government generally is, and then they begin to lose some of those favorite statuses, that's not persecution. We can't whine about that. That's just kind of leveling the playing field with other religions. That's not what I'm talking about here. What Jesus is telling his disciples is that if they live a consistent Christian life, and if they don't hide it, those two things, if they live a consistent Christian life and they don't hide it, they will be harmed. Teenagers, if you live a consistent Christian life in junior high and high school and you do not hide it, you will be harmed. Adults, this is what he says. Look, look at chapter 16, verse 4. But I have said these things to you so that when the hour comes, you, you may remember that I told them to you. Teenagers, if, if the conversation in class or with your friends at the lunch table, turns to a subject where you know that the Christian view will be looked at as odd or bizarre 
or even rude and intolerant. Don't be shocked. Don't don't get surprised by that. In fact, what you should be surprised by, if you claim the name of Jesus and that doesn't happen, be surprised by the lack of mockery, not the arrival of it. We should be surprised as Christians in America that we've gotten a free pass for so long. That's the surprising fact. That for a couple of centuries, because Christian values have lined up with the deistic values of a government, for a couple of centuries, surprise, we got off. Adults, if you're in business and, you're work, and you work in an environment where there are company-wide accepted practices which put you in a position of being strange to the company, of even being in moments repellent, don't be surprised. Jesus, Jesus said, I want you to remember that I told you this. When it happens, remember, I told you. This will happen. That's the first lesson. If we're going to resist the temptation to fall away, we have to stop acting all befuddled when this stuff happens. We need to expect that if we live a consistent Christian life and we do not hide it, we will at some point experience anything from a low-grade mockery To out-and-out harm. Number two. The second lesson to actually standing and not falling away is to know why this phenomenon occurs. To know why persecution happens. Why is it that living a consistent Christian life and not hiding it, why does this result in antagonism? Jesus gives us two reasons. First of all, look at verse 19. Chapter 15, verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because you are, I chose you out of the world, Therefore, the world hates you. So so the first reason we see that Jesus says at some point you're going to experience this is because you don't belong. Fundamentally, you don't belong. This world, you don't belong to it. And that's why it hates you. If you're a Christian, at some point, a whole bunch of people in your company, in your business, in your career, in your friend set, on your block, at some point, there's going to be a whole group of people, and you're a part of that group, and it's going in a certain way that you cannot go in. And when you pull away from a group, that group knows it doesn't own you. And it will hate you. That's the way humans work. It happens in racist societies when they discover that someone 
has an illicit birth and they're a half-breed. The stories are terrible. It happens all over the place. This is a common phenomenon. You see, at some point in your life as a Christian businessman, it will become apparent to your company that the company doesn't own you. When everybody else puts company first, there comes a moment where you don't. And when you don't, when the company knows that it is not first, listen, there will come a moment in many of us, in our families, where suddenly our family is met with the decision we make that our family is not first, that our race is not first. That our gender is not first. And when that happens, it inevitably produces conflict. And the people around you, they feel it. They feel it in your, their bones. Your political party feels it in its bones that when you refuse to go with their values, they know they do not own you and you are suspect. Now, the second reason, Jesus says, that the world will hate you, the second reason that it will turn on you because of your lack of belonging, is that that's what it did to Jesus. And that's what it continues to do to Jesus. This is what he's saying in chapter 15, verses 20 to 25. He goes into this whole thing about the world hated me, the, master's not, the servant's not better than the master. What he's doing here. The best way I know to wrap our minds around these five verses where he's opening up the second level of not belonging is to tell you about a story that was told in the the early 5th century by a guy named Augustine. It's It's in the very first memoir ever written called Augustine's Confessions. It launched Western biographies. Augustine tells the true story in his memoirs about when he was a young man, he and some friends broke into an orchard and stole some pears. Years later, now Augustine was not a Christian. Um, That's part of why his memoirs are so compelling. Um, Years later, he's reflecting on this and he asks himself the question, why did I do that? Number one, he said... I wasn't poor. I didn't need the pears. Number two, on that particular day, I wasn't even hungry. And number three, surprise, I don't enjoy the taste of pears. So he's reflecting on this, and he says, so why did I do it? And, and the, 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 the realization he comes to is that he did it because it was forbidden. That That deep in every human heart, there is something, there is some impulse that says, nobody tells me what to do. And anything that triggers our deep desire for self-sovereignty, anything that comes along and threatens that, will elicit hostility. And if pairs provoke that, what about Jesus, who over and over says, I am the way the truth, and the life, and know you're not good enough, and you owe everything to me. 
There's this idea that Jesus' teachings are warm and fuzzy, but he says here in 15, the world hated me because of what I said. Jesus, his message over and over is this really deep affront, confrontation to, to something at the core of being a human. He looks at us and says, not your way, my way. And so... The world is going to persecute us, one, because we don't belong. Something inside of us, we don't belong. And two, the one we follow confronts the world and says to the world, not your way, but my way. So when a person lives a real Christian life and lives it consistently and doesn't hide it, at some point you're going to experience persecution, insults, and harm because the world will sense that it doesn't own you and because the life you're living infuriates a world who values self-sovereignty. Number three, for us to survive the pressure of persecution, whether it's in the form of insults, or a loss of reputation, or a loss of business, or downright physical harm, if we're going to survive it, we need, number three, to be confident that Christianity is right. Now, this is is important for us right now. This is what's going on in the very complicated series of things Jesus says in chapter 16, Verses 4 to 15. And the key passage here is verses 8, 9, and 10, where it says that the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world, not convict in the way like I feel bad about, but convict in the form of past judgment on, as in a judge in a court going, banging the gavel and and convicting the, uh, is it the plaintiff? or I don't know, what am I saying? The person on trial. All right, it's convict in that sense. Not in the form of feel bad. The person may or may not feel bad. The Holy Spirit will convict, pass judgment, declare guilty the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you'll see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now this is a very complicated thing and it depends on you actually having deeply imbibed all of the Old Testament, especially the Psalms. But let me kind of go to the essence of it. What he's saying here is that the bottom line is that when you feel, when you are persecuted, you need to be confident that that people refusing to believe in Jesus really is sin. It really is. People who do not trust in Jesus as God, it is sin. Be confident in that. Number two, that those who do not believe in Jesus, that those who do believe in Jesus are right. And number three, that the dark power that keeps people in unbelief has been condemned. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying you've got to have confidence in that. You've got to know that if you have oriented your life to Jesus, you're right. That the people who have not, that is sin. And the power that rules over all of the darkness in the world is condemned. 
Now, this gets tricky. Because being confident that we're right, this absolutely does not mean that we can enjoy being persecuted. What I mean is that we need to resist the temptation to feel noble about ourselves when we're persecuted. And we happen to live in a moment in which the only moral high ground which exists in our society is when you can prove that you've been persecuted and you're part of a persecuted group. And if you can do that, if you can prove that you've been picked on, that you've been alienated, that you've been moved against in our society, then you have the victim status. And when you have the victim status, you have the power over people who persecute you and you can vilify them on Instagram and through tweeting, you can castigate them. And all you've got to do To tear somebody down is to prove that you're the victim. And Christians can never do this. Never do this. We cannot use persecution to bow up and knock down. We cannot do this. Why? How did Jesus respond to persecution? Did he do that? Did he go to to Twitter against Pilate? Did he say, hold on, you just lied. Let me shoot. Wait a minute, you're hitting me. Let me me send a picture of this out. Let me get on instant media. Or if you're a Luddite, let me go through the gossip mill and tear you down. No, how does Jesus respond to persecution? He prays for his enemies to be blessed. That is the opposite of Twitter. He does good to his enemies. He loves them. When they came after him, the Bible says when he was reviled, he reviled not again. He never said, I'm a victim and therefore I can castigate you. We live in a society in which people who are persecuted enjoy persecution because it's the only moral high ground left and Christians cannot go there. We're confident that we're right, but we love those who persecute us. We do not tweet about them or jump to any version of castigating them. We pray for them. Father, forgive them. Not pray at them. I forgive you because you did that to me. You know, people who throw forgiveness like an arrow. We don't forgive at them. We forgive them. We pray for them. We bless them. We do good to them. Number four, to not fall away from the Christian faith when we suffer for the Christian faith, we have to, number four, draw courage from Jesus' death and resurrection. Because in his death and resurrection, God's new world is born out of the old one. This is verses 16 to 22. In this passage, Jesus uses the imagery of giving birth to explain the suffering and to prepare his followers for how to think about their own suffering. He says, when you suffer, think about it through the lens, the metaphor, the the experience of a woman giving birth. Is giving birth terrifying? Absolutely. It involves sharp pain, convulsions, breathing difficulties, a form of agony that mere men can only... 
we, Janelle was giving birth in England, and um, I, I was not responding the way the doctors and the nurses wanted me to respond. And I was going in and out of the room, and at one point, the, the nurse looks at Janelle and says, you need to tell him either out or in, right? <laughs> but most women who give birth, they go through it with an eager expectation. Their hearts are already set on the new life that's going to be on the other side of this. And if all goes well, within minutes of the birth, they're deeply content. There may be days and weeks of pain as the body recovers, but new life has come and there's new joy in Jesus' disciples. This is the night before he is crucified. They are about to be plunged into a short, sharp, intense, painful period that will be for them the pain of giving birth. It's all happening because a birth is occurring. A cataclysmic, a cosmic birth. New creation is being born. So when we're in the midst of suffering, because we are followers of Jesus, the deep teachings of the scripture is that we need to know that our sufferings are the birth pains of the new creation in the old. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 puts it this way. 1 Peter 4, 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Same, same teaching, right? Don't be surprised. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. You are sharing in the suffering He went through to birth new creation. This is a remarkable thing. The fourth lesson is that for us to draw courage from Jesus' victory, that we are participating in the victory in the same way he brought it about. In our sufferings, we're participating in the, in the coming to birth of new creation. We're partnering with God in birthing new creation in this world. And the best metaphor Jesus has for this is the metaphor of birth. So to, to survive it, when you're being made fun of, when you're losing your job, when you're suffering, when you're persecuting, is to think for just a moment, new life is coming into this world. There is no painless birth. And I'm on the giving birth side of that. Number five, the fifth lesson we need, if we're going to remain faithful to King Jesus when we suffer persecution, is that we have the remarkable privilege of direct access to the Father who loves us intimately and personally. John chapter 16, verse 23. In that day you will ask nothing of me, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father, direct access. You don't go through Jesus or Mary or the saints. Direct access is what he's saying here. Now, this is a really comforting thing. You know, we live in a culture where a person's power can be measured by how many people it takes for you to go through to get to them call the company, you get the opera, you get the receptionist, they pass you through to the, to the 
private secretary. That's power. That's importance. And here Jesus says, listen, guys, it ain't like that anymore. You're not going to ask anything of me. As impressive and important as I am, you are going to ask the Father in my name, and he will give it to you. Now, that statement is made in the context of him equipping his followers to endure suffering without falling away. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be made full. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on the behalf No intermediary, because you have loved me and have believed that I've come from God. The Father himself loves you. You, personal, intimate. Teenagers, I first experienced persecution when I was a senior in high school. And I was committed to living a consistent Christian life that I didn't hide, and I went to a public high school. And I remember distinctly these moments when I'm walking down the hallway, and I know what's coming by the group of people coming toward me because of the way that I live my life. And the most powerful thing I had, and this worked over and over and over, was that I would pray to God and say quietly in my, in my own head, I would pray to God and say a passage of Scripture that my father had taught me to memorize when I was a little kid and I was struggling with nightmares. 2 Timothy 1.7. I would pray to the Father, you've not given me a spirit of fear, but power and love. Help me right now not to avoid the persecution that's coming. By hiding. And this still works, guys. This isn't just for children or teenagers. This is for all of us. This is what we see Jesus doing so vividly when he faced it, right? The night before he's about to be tortured. What does he do? Does he go to his friends? Yes, he does. And what do they do? They let him down. And he goes to the Father, directly to the Father. And he asks the Father for help. This is the fifth thing. You can talk to God and he will help you. Now look, is being picked on scary? Absolutely. It's very scary. Is losing your job a scary prospect? It's terrifying. Is is your family misunderstanding you scary? Yes. Are people at school thinking that you are intolerant and you're a bigot and that you don't love them because you disagree with their sexual views? Absolutely, that's scary. Is it scary for Christians in Sudan right now to face the terror 
that they are facing. It is terrifying. But in those moments, these are the things Jesus gives us. Don't be surprised. Know why it's happening. Be confident that you're right. Draw courage from the absolute fact that new creation will be birthed through your suffering and avail yourself. When you are facing temptation to compromise and back down, avail yourself of the remarkable privilege of talking to the king who loves you and will answer your prayer in that moment. Parents, pray for your children. Ask God that they don't suffer. But go beyond that prayer and ask the Father that when they do, they will not fall away. Will you make this your dominant prayer? And children, will you please pray for your parents? I promise you, what we go through is worse than what you're going through. It is harder and there is far more on the line. Will you pray for us that we will not fall away? And when we pray for our brothers and sisters in North Korea and Sudan and Egypt... And in the Congo, 35 million people killed in the Congo over a 12-year period of whom the vast majority were Christians killed for their Christian faith from 1997 to around 2007. A, a, A holocaust. When we keep praying for them, we pray that they will not fall away. This is what we pray. And when you pray for your friends, pray for them. And in small groups, when you talk about suffering, pray that we will not apostatize. That our church will learn in a society where we are losing favored status. Pray. Pray that we will hold to King Jesus. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.